0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 633 CoLab podcast. My name is Jimmy Doyle, and I am your host, and I just want to say thanks for tuning in. I hope that this podcast and any other 633 podcast you listen to is encouraging and challenging for you. The topic of the conversation today is the Syrian refugee crisis, and it's actually going to be one of several podcasts in a series that we're going to be doing about that topic. Uh, and we're going to approach it from two different angles. One is is that since October of 2015, I've had the great opportunity and honor to interview several people who have worked directly with Syrian refugees, both here in the United States and in the Middle East. Some of them have worked with refugees for a long period of time, and some it's a fairly new thing. And so I hope that uh, you're encouraged by what you hear from them and gain some insight. The other perspective that I'm going to take uh, in a series of podcasts is What does this Bible have to say to us about refugees and our relationship to refugees? Uh, Obviously, the issue of the Syrian refugees has been a topic of our national debate and dialogue and rhetoric here in the United States since the Paris attacks, but even before then, it's been a topic for a while in relation to safety and national security. But my perspective in these podcasts is to ask, as followers of Jesus, what should our relationship be to refugees? What kinds of attitudes should we have towards them and what kinds of actions should we engage in? My guest for this episode is Rich Rosendahl, who I was able to interview back in the early winter of 2015. Rich is the founder of an organization called The Nations, which seeks to help individuals and groups connect with their refugee neighbors, both here in the United States and overseas. In this regard, Rich brings a broad range of experience. He's worked with refugees in Palestinian refugee camps in the West Bank. He's worked in Tunisia along the Libyan border with refugees from Libya. He's been a part of peace teams that have helped bring reconciliation between conflicting factions and, and tribes in southern Iraq. And he has worked with refugees in Mafraq, Jordan, from the Syrian crisis, uh, as well as creating networks of uh, friendships and connections with refugees here in the United States. On our website, we will provide links and information to his organization. If after you hear him, you think to yourself, I want to know how to connect with refugees myself. Rich would be a great resource, and his organization would be a great resource. And so I hope that you uh, are challenged by what Rich has to share with us and encouraged by what you hear as well. Rich, thanks for being with us today. I'm excited to have a chance to talk to you and uh, glad that we connected. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and how did you get involved with working with refugees?
1: Yeah, well, uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on on your podcast. Um, really the nations and getting involved with our neighbors who have arrived in the U.S. from the Middle East and North Africa, it really began for me a number of years ago in all places. I was in Tijuana, Mexico, and I had gone down there uh, with a group of friends and we were building structures actually for people who were in high poverty situations and really needed a place to live. Our final day there, we actually spent time in an orphanage. And at the orphanage, there was a very young girl, maybe a year and a half, maybe two years old. And we're all kind of, you know, playing with the kids. But this little girl was getting tired and eventually you could tell she was going to fall asleep in somebody's arms. And the truth was, I was hoping that wasn't going to be me. And I have kids and having this young girl fall asleep in my arms is a very tender moment. And just knowing as an orphan, you know, what her future looked like, it was just a very, it was very trying emotionally. Well, sure enough, um, somebody handed her to me and she fell asleep in my arms. And I probably sat in that chair for a half hour, 45 minutes, maybe an hour with this little girl sound asleep. And I started thinking about her future. And I realized that in her situation in Mexico, um, you know, her future was not bright. The options of well, things were going to happen after this for her were, were not good. As I was sitting there, I thought about me being there. I thought about the people in our group who were there. I thought about how many people were coming to the city to to love her to love people in the city to be a part of you know moving forward in a new direction and then it hit me there are parts of the world where there's nobody showing up at the orphanage there's nobody showing up to build structures and there's this divide that's been created between uh, most specifically between like the 1.6 billion Muslims of the world and the 2.2 billion Christians of the world where heck we're hardly even talking let alone showing up and spending time in each other's country. So that day is really what kick everything. And through a great deal of prayer, prayer, I started asking, you know, what are some things that we can do to start the dialogue with our, our neighbors who come from that region? And, and it really became a turning point that, that led to the organization that we have today.
0: So you go from Mexico with an a orphan girl in your arms to thinking about Muslim people around the world who need care and, and just a connection. It wasn't just the care part, just the lack of connection.
1: Yeah, it was it was it was interesting. I left Mexico and I went back to my home city and kind of started to look at the the world around us even here in the US. And I started to realize that you know, even in my city there were thousands of neighbors who have a background that comes from very difficult environments like like what I had experienced in that in in, in Mexico that had not, now arrived in the US. And when I flipped on the news, you know, what did I see, you know, over and over, there was this idea that, you know, people from the Middle East and from America are, you know, enemies, or we're, we're, we have the inability to get along to develop lifelong meaningful friendships. But I realized in my city, there were people who come from that part of the world, and I had never met, I'd never sat down and had coffee with them, I'd never had tea or a meal. And I realized, well, that doesn't make a just generally doesn't make a lot of sense. If we're going to spend time together. If we're going to get to know each other, we got to spend time together. And, and so that's what we started to do in our city was we started to meet each other. We started to have meals together. We started to have tea and coffee. And we really just started the dialogue. You know, what don't we know about each other that would be helpful to learn about each other? And it continued to expand and grow into a network.
0: So had the Muslim world been a part of your background prior to this, or is it, was this brand new for you?
1: Yeah, it was certainly brand new. I grew up in a very small town in the middle of nowhere in the Midwest. Uh, my exposure to really much of anything growing up as a as a young person was minimized in my small town and a little bigger town just up the road. But no, my encounters with um, you know the Middle East and North Africa was, was zero. But that's true of a lot of Americans. That's true of a lot of us who, not for lack of effort, we just maybe haven't thought through how many neighbors we actually have who come from these parts of the world that we now have access to. Learn more about these cultures, learn more about the religions, learn how to develop a friendship with people who maybe on a, at first seemed quite different than us. And so I had really zero background as a young person, but but ultimately, you know, taking those first steps, you know, step one, you know, meeting with a neighbor, getting to know them, step two, and then down to, you know, spending time in the Middle East in refugee camps is really where it, um, where it took me.
0: So you quickly kind of went over, hey, so I wanted to start connecting with my Muslim neighbors or the people in my community, started having coffee with them. But at first, not having a connection previously with that culture or subculture, how do you even begin? Not
1: only did I not have uh, any experience with that, like most of us, you know, I remember nine eleven very vividly. I remember what I was doing. I remember what me and some of my friends were talking about doing. I I remember it. Most of us do. So not only did I not have an experience, the experiences I did have, to be honest, left me, uh, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of um, concerns of of what I was stepping into. But really what it came down to was, you know, in my life, was I going to let fear lead the way or something altogether different? And so what the first step was, was really making that decision is fear or the alternative love you to lead the choices I make in my life. And I'm not saying it was easy. Um, it certainly took a high level of courage, but I made the choice that, you know what? Love is going to lead in my life, not, not fear. And it started with that. And then it practically led to, you know, meeting with people, getting to know neighbors in my city, um, inviting friends over for tea. And then the process um, kind of continued from there. But really step one was asking myself the question, so I going to let fear lead the way or instead let love
0: So since that time you started building relationships, not only were you connecting with people locally, but you began to travel internationally yourself to um, North Africa and the Middle East.
1: I remember my first trip to those parts of the world. I was was in North Africa and I had a lot of, you know, uh, nerves going into it. You know, what, what to experience, you know, what what was I going to see when I got there? You know, I even wondered, you know, I, I, uh, and I look, my appearance, I have blonde hair. I'm very, I'm going to stand out. How am I going to be treated? What, what kind of reception will I receive? And, you know, of all the concerns I had, I would say it 100% was exactly the opposite of what I was worried about. What I found when I got to, in this case, North Africa, and I would say the same is very true in, in parts in most of the Middle East, I was received with such a warm welcome. I was re- received with tons of hospitality. Everyone I met along the way wasn't. You know, I wasn't met with, well, you know, am I Western or American and we can't... No, no, I was met with, can you come to my house for tea? Can you come to my house for lunch? Tell me about your life. Tell me about your children. Tell me that it was... I was met with such a great deal of hospitality and love. It was really the polar opposite of what many of my worries were. And that was my first experience. Then I went on to spend more time in in the Middle East, for example, and I kept seeing this pattern over and over. I kept seeing that some of these places where I had maybe some concern or worry or some fear, exactly the opposite was true. Our neighbors from these parts of the world are a lot like us, friendly, loving, kind. I would say they go far beyond maybe American culture in the sense that the hospitality that is expressed to total strangers like me is remarkable. I I can't think of any other part of my life where I've experienced hospitality to that degree. I remember I was down in southern Iraq and I was with a couple of Iraqis and we had driven into a town where we were going to visit a hospital. And as we pulled into town, it was maybe about, I think, one million people in this city. And I pull in, I stroll in um, with my blonde hair and my, our two Iraqi friends, um, we're all three traveling, and we get just turned around enough that we can't find the actual road to get to the hospital where we have meetings. And so our driver pulls over and asks um, someone on the street for directions. Very normal, not a big deal. Well, at the end of this conversation, the guy we had asked from directions for asked if all three of us want to come to his house for lunch. And and it was like, really, we we just we just asked for directions, but it was it's that kind of hospitality, and he certainly uh, and wanted us to come. And clearly we were strangers because we were asking for directions and we didn't know him, but over and over my experiences overseas, I I have been met with remarkable hospitality where my fears are really exposed for being really irrational and leading more toward, um, actually how loving our neighbors are toward those of us from America and those parts of the world.
0: And you're, you're in Iraq at, at a time period when, um, some violence is taking place. Yep, yeah, yeah. Um
1: We were there, um, you know. Of course, we all know of the organization that exists there now and, and the horrible things, the um, unimaginable things that have happened. In fact, when I was there, um, I was in a southern city where I had a very, very neat experience. I was invited to, we would call it like a refugee center. However, these are Iraqis who have fled that organization, moved south, so they're The proper term would be more like internally displaced um, neighbors, and they're fleeing the same people that we're worried about. And I think there was something like, at that time, at least 10,000 Iraqis who had fled left everything behind. Fleeing, leaving home, leaving money, Had in some cases had already lost lives in their family, brothers, sisters, moms, and dads. And the city I was in is roughly, I think, about 1.5 million people, and there was a center where internally displaced or refugee Iraqis had come where people were trying to help trying to assist the situation all along this road, this long road from the, the west and the north, there were people just lined up you um, trying to survive and just just not even shacks. they were like tents almost kind of it 's a very, very difficult environment and the southern Iraqis in the region I had been in had responded in such a remarkable way, despite all the violence all of the Talk about sectarianism and all of this stuff. It it, it, almost like it didn't matter. What mattered was they had neighbors who needed help, and so they were responding. In fact, on the TV in Arabic, um, the headline kind of like you think of, you know, certain TV channels have the banner at the bottom, kind of like that. Except it was on every channel. It had a little saying in Arabic that was reminding the people of that region to help their refugee neighbors, to help those who are in need. And I went to the center and I got to see there was a well, one of the men who was kind of helping coordinate efforts, was also helping getting the financing for food, water, housing for over 10,000 people, might have been up to 20,000 by that time. And he shared the story with me about a 12-year-old girl that came to him a handful of days prior as he was kind of hearing people's stories and said she had three young siblings, younger than her, she was 12. And she was looking for help because that organization had taken both of her parents.
0: Yeah. And when you say organization, I mean, you're talking about Daesh, right? Like ISIS, ISIL. Yeah.
1: Yep. That's, yep. That's the group. And, uh, they had, they had killed both of her parents. And so she now became mom. She was 12 years old. She was at this refugee center. She had three siblings and suddenly she's mom, and so to watch and experience how our Iraqi neighbors are responding to the violence we it was just a reminder in many ways you know we're in this together now we don't I don't mean that in the sense that we have people experiencing that violence here on a daily basis, but we are in this together that we're all we all realize we have to be unified in helping the now certainly millions who have had to flee because of because of this ridiculous violence,
0: right. And, and you're there in Iraq during this time as a part of uh, peace teams, right? You're trying to to help resolve issues of conflict uh, within Iraq.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, this experience and what we're going to be working on as an organization long term is um, kind of like how this all started when I realized, you know, I hadn't spent a lot of time with neighbors from this part of the world. We weren't really, I wasn't really talking and so in, in, in having these dialogues, so I also wasn't learning. On a broader scale, we have the same things happening globally. So to create an opportunity for someone to go sit at that same table I was at in Iraq and hear that same story about that little girl that became mom, it helps us better understand each other as humans and certainly as neighbors. And so what we're working on is we're partnering, or we've been working with a couple different organizations. One in particular does a lot of peace work in the region. They're helping bring neighbors together in that region who have Sunni or Shia background. You know, the sectarianism is is a very, very different look when we're over there than what maybe we see here. And so his organization is actually specifically working to overcome some of the sectarianism that began around 2003, 2004, and they're doing that piecework. We've come alongside that. We've talked with them about ways to partner specifically to help bring more neighbors together. Whether you know they're already bringing neighbors from Iraq to the U.S. to see the U.S. you know in many cases for the first time, but to meet Americans who live in the suburbs and who are farmers and you know see what what America is is like, and then and then we're going to be doing the same, bringing Americans over to see Iraq to see what happened because of the violence, because of the conflict, because of now this new emerging organization that is terrorizing the region to see and experience this for the long-term effect of. All of us coming together, saying, "Okay, we got to stop this. We got to find a new way forward." And so we're working with a couple different organizations to open those doors
0: in that region. Uh, so for you, I mean, relationships are the center of resolving these conflicts globally and locally.
1: Absolutely, I, I say uh, I don't know what it is, but I I, I think. <laughs> I think God did something very special with food. I don't know what it is, but it seems like when we sit down at the table with someone and we have a meal, it's really hard to be, you know, to view that person as our enemy. So what we're doing is really in a broad scale, having having a meal with everybody and saying, hey, let's sit down, let's share a meal, let's break bread, let's talk about, you have kids, I have kids, let's talk about our family, let's talk about our job, let's talk about life, let's humanize each other. Let's re-humanize each other after... Arguably, decades, maybe even longer, of dehumanization, which has caused such great divides and in, in understanding each other. So through those relationships we we begin to humanize
0: each other. And somebody we know said, "Remember me in the meal." Right? I mean, the meal was such a center yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 So, out of all of these experiences, you formed an organization called the Nations.
1: Yeah, so what we realized, you know, early on as it kind of began, I wanted to, you know, spend time with neighbors and, you know, brought some friends together and we all kind of started hanging out and just seeing what was happening. But what we realized very quickly is there are so many people throughout the U.S. and really in different parts of the world who are just like us that wanted to spend time with neighbors. We keep seeing stuff on the news, we keep seeing stuff on Facebook, on social media, and the internet. But people are saying, hey, we want to spend time together because something, for a lot of us, it's like something just didn't feel right in, in what we were experiencing. So what we did is over time, with the encouragement of many, they said, hey, you guys have some really cool stuff happening. You know, this network of friendships is expanding, and it's been very fruitful and remarkable. Things are happening all the time. You know, what would it look like if we got organized? And so we did. We developed an organization back at the end of 2012, and what we our intention was was to create an opportunity for people like us who said, they kind of raised their hands and said, you know, we want to love our neighbor and, and live life together and spend time together. But that's, those first couple steps can can feel a little tricky. So right. what we do is a number of things. And one of them is we work with individuals and organizations who have a desire to spend time with their neighbors and get to know them and, and develop networks of friendships. What we do is we come alongside those individuals and help them along the way. We give them pointers. We actually have a very specific training program that we um, invite people to be part of. And I joke that the training program mostly consists of all the mistakes we made. (laughs) Basically, it's here's all the mistakes we made. Here's what not to do, but not really. It's a big part of it, though, because there isn't a ton of people who have, you know, stepped out into this world yet. We're all kind of doing it for the first time. You know, the effect of globalization is in many ways, it's due to humanity. Um, You know, the the nations of the world becoming neighbors to the degree that we have here in America is kind of a newer. It's got. There's a newer feel to it, so we're really just trying to figure out how to do this. Um, you're trying to figure out the best way to do this, and then through the organization, we support others as they're they're doing it as well through different training programs. And what's been great about our how how we work is we've actually been able to um, work in a number of different cities. Um, we we aren't just in our own. Uh, we work on a national level, so people who reach out to us, it's nice. I get a call from Portland, Oregon one day, you know, we're working with someone there. And then the next day in North Carolina, literally coast to coast and down in Texas and in and Arkansas and, and all over, people reach out and say, Hey, we want to get involved with our neighbors, but, you know, we're kind of thinking this through. And, and like a lot of us just having somebody come alongside us while we're doing it can be tremendously helpful and, and effective. And so it's been nice to be able to um, meet people and hear stories from all over the U.S. I got one the other day. They said, well, it may have changed now, but one of they said there are many Syrian neighbors who will be arriving in our city through the resettlement agency here soon, and they were very excited about getting a chance to meet with them and learn different ways to come together as neighbors and really establish some close friendships um, early on. So it's been nice to see the the, the, the desires across the, the whole U.S. really to uh, spend time with neighbors.
0: Yeah, that's not a voice that we're uh, hearing as often in the uh, media sphere these days. A welcoming yeah. voice we yeah. don't hear as often, but it's, I think it's there okay. for sure. Yeah. Um, so, oh yeah, you have this broad background from working with people here in the U.S., and you've also been to some of the, uh, you know, the hot spots, I guess. And in, in terms of, you worked in uh, Tunisia on the Libyan border with refugees. Uh, you've worked in Palestine. You've worked in Iraq, and you've worked in in Jordan with uh syrian refugees what's your take about what's going on and what's happening in syria and iraq right now like what is your perspective on that
1: yeah um i i think to really even start to have a conversation about what's going on in syria and iraq we need to start to use a word like disaster and that's the best word i can think of Um, We have millions and millions, literally millions of neighbors who have been um, fleeing unimaginable violence. I sat down in a um, town near the Syrian border with some Syrian neighbors who had recently fled, and to sit with them and hear their stories, you know, to sit and have them pull up their phones with video on it and say, this was my city, or this is what happened when I lost my dad my mom or our son or a brother. And to see those videos and to see those pictures, it's very sobering. It's we, we have to realize and this isn't a handful of people. Not that it'd be okay if it was just a handful of people. These are millions of people being forcibly displaced by unimaginable violence. Iraq is no different. You have that region that they've taken over, you see the internally displaced um, neighbors, they, they have lost everything. And to think about the region is to think about it in the terms of a, it's a disaster. And it's been going on for quite a while. A good friend of mine takes American background neighbors over to Syrian border to spend time and love and learn from our Syrian friends who are surviving there as refugees. And I think he's taken seven trips. And on one hand, I want to say, way to go. I mean, that's awesome. On the other hand, it's like, why are we still making trips? You know, this has started four years ago. When When is it going to end? And so my take on the situation is, start, we have to realize there is an absolute disaster happening in this part of the world that really is going to have a ripple effect throughout the globe. The question is, how do we put an end to it? How do we stop it? Because we have millions of families that are in desperation. We've all seen the pictures. Of families trying to cross the uh, uh, cross cross the Mediterranean, we've seen what's happening there. This is a disaster. So how do we come together? Whether we're in Oklahoma City or Des Moines, Iowa, or San Antonio, Texas, wherever we are, how do we come together and we put an end to this disaster? And, and I think that's the, that should be the hope. That should be the dialogue. How do we put an end to this? How do we get these families homes? How do we help them? You know, return to some normalcy in life.
0: And it's not, in my opinion, it's not going to be a short-term, like, this is a long-term thing, and we need to think about long-term solutions, and to be aware that extreme situations create extreme realities. We should not be shocked by that anymore, but we should start to respond to rebuild something.
1: I sat down with some Syrian friends, and they said, you know, no matter what, our home will never be the same. And I don't mean because you know, their home was maybe destroyed and they can't rebuild it exactly the same. Like if a house is, you know, the around here in America, that's not what they meant. They're, they've their whole culture. I mean, entire cities are gone. I mean, how do you, how do you rebuild from that? And so there's this great sense of loss for so many things. And one of them for our neighbors from Syria is that home will never be home again. And so with that, We are in an environment where people will be getting new homes. They're going to start a new life somewhere. And what's been awesome to see in the U.S., having been involved in this stuff for the last few years, is to see how amazing our refugee program has been. I have friends that not – we just talked about the Syria and Iraq region, but there are other parts of the world. I think – I want to say the U.N. stats say something around – something like there's around 10 million Refugees in the globe at any really at any given time, so there's a lot of issues throughout the world where people are in the most desperate of circumstances. And our refugee program here in the U.S., I I think we could expand our numbers. I think you know going from where we are today, doubling, even tripling them um, would be very possible and could be in a very very effective way to engage the problem and work toward a solution. Because to be able to see families who, yeah, home's never going to be the same. And, yeah, that's where we want to go. We always want to go back home. But it's not going to be the same. It's not an option anymore. Let's start a new life. And to be able to start a new life and become involved in, you know, our society here, the culture here in America, to become, you know, doctors and and, and businessmen and women. And, you know, one of my friend's daughter, she's in the Gifting Talented program at her school, and I, I can't help when I see her, I think. Boy, we're lucky to have her here. She's going to do some remarkable things in this society in our city and in, in this really in the u s as she grows up. We have such an an amazing program we're We're doing some great things. I think one of the ways we can lean into the problem as a country, as a culture is say, our doors are open. We'd like you to come here. We have the resources. We have the the ways to do it we We have what you need. You're desperate. You're in you know, unimaginable circumstances. We we can make this happen. And I think it's a way that we can respond to have a huge impact on the situation right now.
0: So, when someone would say, "Hey, we have to be really careful about these refugees because they might come over here and attack us and at risk of life to Americans," what is your response to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly a uh, you know certainly a question people are asking and thinking through. And and when I look at it, I I have a hard time with it. And I think sometimes it might not be the right question. You know, maybe what I would think about is think of the organization we're so afraid of, Daesh, right? This is the concern. This is the the forefront. Let's just, you know, call it what it is. That's what we're worried about. One of the things that I would encourage people to think through when it comes to what we call like the vetting process for our refugee neighbors is I have a – friends, and I'll give you one example, who um, they were in a situation where they had to flee violence. Um, We've got mom, dad, and baby daughter. Through the process, mom and daughter got to come, in this case, the U.S. It took five years before dad got here because of that process. Five years. I know people, I've met families who are in just the craziest refugee situations, and they know yeah i 'd like to come to someplace like the u s through the program, but it 'll take forever it 's almost like this i don 't even want to try because it 's so so difficult so we, what we do know is it is extremely challenging to come to the u s through this program. so the question that I ask people is if you were one of those organizations and you had millions and millions of dollars at your Fingertips, right? We know these are these are well-funded organizations.
0: You're talking about one, one of the terrorist organizations, yeah, like Daesh,
1: for example. Yeah. If they, you know, if they have millions and millions and millions of dollars, why on earth would they try to get some of their ideology through a refugee program that can take forever? It makes no sense. What does make sense? I would say, with all that money, you could probably make a pretty good passport. Now, I'm not saying that that should put all of our minds at ease. But I think as far as the refugee program goes, it just doesn't make sense. It's not a practical means by which to carry out their ideology. Now, is it something that's prominent in our thinking? Absolutely. But I I suggest to people, as we start to ask that question, let's hold off. Let's just back up a second and say, what just makes more sense? Because what we do have is we have a history of our refugee neighbors coming through that program, becoming a part of our society and our culture in, in, in awesome and helpful ways. We don't have this long history of crime, or in this case, terroristic ideology happening. We don't have that. There's too many other options, too many other opportunities to get their ide- ideology that just make more sense for them.
0: I had the honor of being in a meeting with Daniel Kurtzer, who was a former ambassador to Egypt and then also ambassador to Israel. And someone asked him, this was before the Paris attack, someone asked him about the refugee issue. And he said, look, Anytime that we've had significant numbers of refugees come into our country in large numbers, it it has proven beneficial for our nation in the long term in terms of business, culture, vibrancy, and that's the reality. But fear causes us to have irrational uh, responses. When you speak with refugees uh, here, like, is this a topic of conversation among those who have already uh, found refuge here, or is it... Are they even, when you go to refugee locations that are in the Middle East, are they even aware of this conversation taking place?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, one of the things that I've enjoyed over the years is many of our neighbors who happen to be here as refugees from the Middle East and North Africa also have a very deep interest in politics, the politics that are not only affecting their countries, but also here in the U.S. So we have these conversations a lot. You know, what are the global issues that we're dealing with. And it's interesting when when things come up like the terrorist organizations that have had done some really, really awful things. I, I hear this a lot, and it, it's hard to hear, but it's kind of the question of, you know, there's a lot of Americans and there's only a handful of terrorists. Why did a handful of terrorists cause such a massive group of people, American culture, to shift in its thinking so much toward you know, Muslims, for example. How is that possible? That's a topic that we talk about. How can that possibly be? How can so many people be shifted in their thinking by such a small number of people? And so that's certainly something we're trying to figure out. And it's interesting that so many of our neighbors who are here as refugees have fled the exact same groups that we're worried about. We share that in common. And so we're certainly talking about it. My Many of my refugee friends are now American citizens, and so they'll be voting, you know, in the upcoming election. For example, so these are topics that we're certainly talking about on, on a very consistent basis.
0: So, I mean, here we are in the United States; we're in the middle of all this. Individuals are concerned, families are concerned, churches are concerned. What would you say to people or groups in light of our current climate and current issues?
1: My recommendation to people is to take a step back from it all because it is, it's scary, it's crazy, it's chaotic to think about it on a larger level. But just take a step back, kind of go back to that simple question that we ask is, do we want to move forward in our response out of fear or do we want to move forward in our response out of love? Which do we choose? And as people over and over saying, wait a minute, yeah, we want to move forward in love. How do we do that? That's where... You know, like my organization comes in and we help people take some of those first steps. If you're, you need a sounding board to say, you know, here's some fears that I'm going through or what I'm trying to deal with, but I want to go to my, the Holol grocery store in my neighborhood or the Iraqi restaurant down the street or the Palestinian restaurant down the street. I want to go talk to my coworker who I know has been on Hajj and I know – praise, you know, um, five times a day is following the way of Islam. I want to talk with him or her, and I'm not really sure. But I would say is, you know, as we move forward and making the choice to respond with love, um, you know, be, be human, invite someone for tea, invite them for coffee, start a conversation, ask about children, ask about spouses, ask about a job if they're not at work, ask those questions just like you would anybody else. And for those of you who want some support, our organization exists to help people, and so you can visit our website it's www.thenations-dsm.org. org You can check us out. You can send me an email. my email is listed on there. We can set up a time to chat on the phone and, and really start the conversation of okay now that we 're ready to respond and we want to move forward, what are some you know very practical first steps that we can take in our workplace or in our community to really engage neighbors and really pursue loving each other as neighbors. Um, and, and really doing life together.
0: In your coaching, do you also address, hey, don't do this? Like, are there things that you would say, yeah, that, that's yeah. not the good first steps to do?
1: Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I uh, You know, there's things like food, for example. Um, if we were to have a meal with someone who had food restrictions, what might that look like? And we certainly talk about that. One of the things that I encourage people to always keep in mind through our coaching and through our training is that our neighbors who follow Islam, who come from the Middle East and come from North Africa, are are some of the most gracious, loving, kind, and hospitable people I've ever encountered. So even if we do something silly, even if we make a mistake, we're going to be met with grace. And it's been amazing. I've done some crazy things, some silly things, and many people have. But you know what? it's okay. We're, we're met with grace. We're met with understanding time and time again. And and we keep moving toward that friendship. But having said that, of course, there's some reservations and we talk through that. Um, we can be, like I said, a sounding board of, you know, I had somebody, I was um, at an event for um, the other night and a guy approached me. He wanted to talk about kind of the refugee situation, the environment that we're in. And we started chatting and he said, you know, my friend showed me this thing on YouTube the other day. And as soon as you hear that, you kind of can anticipate which direction it's going to go. And so we talked about it. And he just needed to get that off his chest and say, this is what I saw. Is this really going on over there or potentially here or what? And and, and we talked about it. And I said, would you like to meet someone from that part of the world? Because we have neighbors here from there. Would you like to sit down and have tea or coffee with them and get to know them? And so, yeah, so just being a sounding board for a lot of the craziness that we're seeing and hearing is also something we do just so we can kind of sort through. And, um, you know, I have yet to meet someone that really desires to embrace an irrational fear or really wants to move forward that way. But sometimes we have to kind of talk through some things before we can take those steps forward. And we certainly um, offer that for for individuals and organizations as well.
0: That just sounds fantastic to me because I, I do know that there are people who have those questions. How do I make those first steps? And uh, uh, coaching is is great, man, Rich. Our time is coming to an end. Thank you for your time i 'm going to have you back again in the future, and we can talk about some of your personal experiences. obviously we 've talked about the refugee issue in general today because of because of that fear in our society. but uh, I know that people would love to hear some of your personal stories, both. Maybe some of the mistakes that you you know earlier you mentioned that you've made some mistakes as an organization, and, and I'm sure that some of those are, are personal mistakes. But just to hear more stories, because I think fear comes mostly out of the unknown, and sometimes that that unknown gets set aside by hearing the stories of other people first.
1: Absolutely. Well, I'd I'd love to be back on anytime. It'd be it'd be fun. And yeah, as you mentioned, I probably have some mistakes. Oh, I got tons of them. I can share share some. Some quite funny mistakes, actually, um, but along with that, some really amazing stories about our neighbors here in the U.S. and overseas that are, you know, like I say, coming together with us and saying, hey, let's find a new way forward and let's do it together and let's embrace each other as neighbors. And um, those stories are some of the best to talk about the ways that, you know, we do that and why we can certainly have hope in, in the future.
0: Rich, thank you for your time. Like I say, we will be talking again soon. We're going to keep you and your organization and your family in our prayers. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Jimmy. I hope that you were encouraged by hearing from Rich today. If you would like to follow up with him or with his organization, The Nations, uh, make sure you follow the links on the podcast information page or on whatever page you might find this podcast. There will probably be a link there. His website is thenations-dsm.org. Thenations-dsm.org. Make sure you stop by, check out their information. Uh, Make a connection and uh, try to connect with your refugee neighbors that are local to you. Until next time, thanks.